Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, howdy WCC. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I was trying to play the role of both worshiping the Lord and recording my daughter doing a clarinet solo. So that was, a, that was, that was good. Uh, so we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 8. And today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. And the title of the sermon is Seated at the Right Hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God, and you'll see why in just a little bit. So as a reminder, just an overview sort of of the book of Hebrews, the writer here has been addressing Jewish Christians, and these Jewish people have come out of Judaism, and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ, and now they are now under pressure from their fellow Jews to return to the temple, to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. At this time, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem when the book was written. So these Jewish believers are under pressure from family and friends to go back to the, the Old Testament sacrificial system and to turn away from Jesus. And the writer is telling them, you better not turn away from Jesus. You better not turn to this Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system. Because if you do that, then you're turning away from God. And you're turning away from your only hope of salvation. So the whole book of Hebrews is about persevering in faith. In fact, the writer is saying that real faith in Christ is a persevering faith. And when we are suffering and we're, we're going through trials, and I know many of us are going through trials right now, this is something we need to hear. If you're suffering now, you need to hear God's call on your life that you must persevere in your faith in Christ. Don't turn away. Also, one of the things the, the writer has been doing is preaching a sermon on Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, we've talked about this before, but it was recognized as a huge psalm because it was a psalm about the Messiah. It was a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, David says this. He says, the Lord, God, says to my Lord, to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And we'll see that today in Hebrews chapter 8. It's talking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. Another aspect of Psalm 110 is verse 4. Again, this is about the Messiah, and it says this. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we've talked a lot about what that means, that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what the writer's been doing, basically, for the big chunk of the book of Hebrews, is he's preaching a sermon on Psalm 110. And he's talking about how Jesus fulfills this prophecy about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a king, he'd be on a throne, and he would be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He would not be a priest according to the Old Testament tribe of Levi or Aaron. And the writer's been saying this, because Psalm 110 prophesied that the Messiah would be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This shows that the Old Testament priesthood from the tribe of Levi, that Old Testament priesthood was a temporary thing. 
It was not a permanent thing. It was meant instead to point forward to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. All right? So now we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Up until this time, the writer's been telling us the type of high priest that we need. And Jesus is the only high priest who can truly draw us near to God. And that's the point of our lives. We've talked about that. The telos of our lives is to draw near to God, to be in a personal loving relationship with God. So we need a perfect high priest to bring us to God. And that's what he's going to start talking about in Hebrews 8. So let's read Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. It says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent That the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, so that's the passage we're going to look through this morning. And I'm going to have some application at the end. And here's the application I'm going to tell you up front because I'm actually going to continue this next week. I want us to understand that because we have Jesus as our high priest, our intercessor, we need to be a praying people. Okay, so I want us to think about for this week and for next week, I want us to think about prayer. Because I really want Jesus' priesthood to fuel our prayer lives, both individually and as a church. And I want us to take steps to be more of a praying people. So the fact that Jesus is our sympathetic and faithful high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. This is a great motivation for us to grow in our prayer lives. And so, as I said, I've decided for the next, this week and next week, I'm going to continue this thinking about prayer. All right, let's look at verse 1. Hebrews 8, verse 1, it says, he says, now the point, I love this, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. This is really wonderful because you can tell that the writer has the heart of a pastor, So he's been going through this whole thing, right, about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's very complicated. We've we've talked about that. It's very complex. And so he realizes that all this stuff about Melchizedek can be confusing. And he says here, I'm going to give you the main point. This is the main point. It's like headlines in all caps. He's saying the main point of the whole book of Hebrews is this, that we have such a high priest. One pastor put it this way. He said, this verse is like Hebrews for dummies. Okay? Hebrews for dummies. We have such a high priest. So again, it should be in all capital letters. So the main thing, he's saying the main thing that everything I've been saying is this, that Jesus is our high priest and he's the high priest that we need. He's the high priest that we need and he's the high priest that we have. We have him. We have Jesus as our high priest, and he is all we need. We need a high priest who's without sin, and Jesus is this high priest. We need a priest with an indestructible life, and Jesus is this high priest. He's been raised from the dead. 
So we have such a high priest. So this is the main point. As I said, this is Hebrews for dummies. So Jesus is the, uh, is the only high priest we need, and praise God, he's the one that we have. And remember, the writer is addressing these Christians who are being persecuted. They're going through suffering, and he's encouraging them to persevere in their faith. And again, this is important for us, because when we go through suffering, one of the ways we can persevere in our faith is by remembering that Jesus is our great high priest. What I mean by that is he hears our prayers. He's in the throne room of God right now praying for us. So we have such a high priest. And then the the author reminds us more about Jesus' priesthood. And we're going to continue in verse 1. And we're told this, that he talks about Jesus' posture. He's standing. And Jesus' place. He's at the right hand of God. Okay, so posture and place. Jesus' posture is this. He is seated. Look at verse 1. Continue in verse 1. He says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is seated. We saw this in Psalm 110 verse 1. The the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. So what's the significance of, of Jesus being seated? It's this. It shows that his work is done. It's finished. It's completely done. Jesus has done everything necessary to save his people. That's why he's seated. He's finished the work of saving his people, and he did that, and then he sat down. The Old Testament priests never sat down. In fact, in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was no chair for the priests. There was no place for the priests to sit down because their work was never done. In fact, flip forward a couple of chapters to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 11. We'll look at 11 through 13. But look at Hebrews 10, 11, 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, this is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And notice it says that every Old Testament priest stands daily at his service. The priest was always standing. The priest never sat down because they were constantly working. They were offering these animal sacrifices day after day. But those animal sacrifices could not take away sin. Why was that? Because those sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus. But when Jesus came and offered his life on the cross, it was finished. In fact, that was one of the last things that Jesus said from the cross. It is finished. So Jesus was saying to God the Father, he was saying this, It's finished. It's finished, Father. I've done everything necessary to save my people. I've done it all. I've completed the mission. That's what Jesus has done for us, his people. Which means that we can't add to it, right? We can't do any good works to save ourselves because Jesus has done it all. Jesus completed the work. He died the death that we deserved as our substitute and he was raised from the grave showing that the Father was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice. And then when Jesus finished his work, he sat down. So to my fellow Christians, listen, you, you can't be any more saved than you are right now. You will never be more secure in your salvation than you are right now because it's finished. Our Savior has done it all. And then he sat down. 
So this is the posture of Jesus right now. He's seated. Okay, so that's number one, Jesus' posture. He's seated. Number two is this, Jesus' place. His place. He's at the right hand of God. So you go back to Hebrews 8. Go back to Hebrews 8 and look at verses 1 and 2. It says, now, the point and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. Where? Where's the place where Jesus is seated? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So where is Jesus seated? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. By the way, that phrase majesty in heaven, that's just describing God. Oftentimes Jewish people did not like saying the word God, so they would use phrases like this. So this is saying that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus still has a physical body. Did you know that? I heard a young person say recently that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he got rid of his body and that he's all spirit now. Uh, No, that's not true. Jesus took on humanity. He took on flesh. He has a physical resurrected body right now, and he will always be the God man. When he was raised from the dead, Jesus had a physical body. He's ascended into heaven, and he has a physical body right now. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which means that Jesus is in a physical place. This is not just some la-la land or some, you know, ephemeral, non-existent place. Jesus is in a physical place right now. He's in the throne room of God. It's a real place. Maybe it's in a different dimension. I have no idea. But Jesus, we do know, is in a physical place because he has a physical body. And he's seated at the right hand of God. So verse 2 says, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And by the way, when it's talking about tent or tabernacle, it's the same thing. In the days of Moses, God would meet with Moses in a big tent, a tabernacle. And then the people of Israel would move the tent around as they followed God in the wilderness. So verses 1 and 2 are saying that Jesus is in the true tabernacle in heaven, not in the tent set up by men on earth. That's all this is saying. Go down to verse 5. Verse 5, this is talking about the Old Testament priests in the temple. And it says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So at this time, this is talking about the Old Testament priests. As I said, at this time when the book of Hebrews was written, the Old Testament priesthood was still in effect. And the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. Now the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., And the book of Hebrews was probably written in the 60s A.D. So within a decade, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. But at this time, the sacrifices were still going on. And God gave Israel a generation, basically, to bow the knee to Christ and to stop the temple sacrifices. But Israel didn't do that. They continued on with the Old Testament sacrifices. And God gave them a generation. They refused. And so God used the Roman army to destroy the temple, to destroy Jerusalem. And even today, you know what? There is no temple. And even today, there are no animal sacrifices in Israel. Why is that? Because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So again, in verse 5, it says, The Old Testament priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and shadow. I've talked about this before. But the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests, sacrifices, the temple, everything, they were all copies and shadows pointing forward to their fulfillment in Jesus. Now, this is interesting. The author is writing to Jewish Christians. This is sort of a footnote, but I find it interesting. He's writing to Jewish Christians who lived in the Greek culture, okay? And they would have been familiar with Plato. They would have been familiar with 
Plato's parable of the cave. Now, I have to confess, every time I hear the word Plato, I think of Princess Bride. There's a guy in Princess Bride, he said, ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons! <laughs> that, that show. Marriage. <laughs> that dream within a dream. All right. What was I talking about? Plato. Okay, Plato. So Plato said this. It's kind of a weird thing, but he said that. Still thinking about marriage. Wow, too wow. Um, Plato said that our knowledge here on earth is like a prisoner who's in a cave, okay? And that's all he's ever known. So he's facing this cave wall, and this firelight is coming from behind him. And all he sees are shadows on the cave wall. And the prisoner is unable to turn his head to the side. So all he sees are these shadows. He thinks they're reality, but that's not actually reality. So Plato said that that was our perspective. So Plato taught that all the things that we see in this world are like shadows on a cave wall. They're shadows of a deeper reality. So he would say that in heaven or some other place, there is this non-physical essence of everything. There are these greater realities in heaven, and everything on earth is a shadow or copy. That's what Plato said. So if you have a chair in heaven, there's this non-physical essence or non-physical idea of chair. There's this form of chairness or the essence of chairness. Sounds like a perfume, essence of chairness. Um, And then every chair on earth is a copy or shadow or imitation of this, okay? So, So that's what Plato taught. It's a complex thought, but the bottom line is this. These Jewish Christians would have been familiar with this idea of of copies and shadows. And the writer of the Hebrews is using this type of language, but he's doing something different here. He's not saying that in heaven there is a non-physical essence of tabernacle or something like that, or just an idea of tabernacle. He's saying in heaven there is physical reality. In fact, it's a deeper reality than what we know because it's the throne room of God. He calls it the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the true tabernacle is, as I said, a physical location where the throne room of God is located. And Jesus, in his physical resurrected body, is seated at the right hand of God right now. So the writer is saying that God's throne room is he- in heaven is real. That's, the, that's the, this physical place in heaven. That's the center of power for the universe. Because this is the throne room of God. This is the control room of the entire universe where God's throne is. And Jesus is right there at the right hand of the Father. So the writer's saying the tabernacle in the days of Moses and later the temple in Jerusalem, these were copies or shadows of the real thing in heaven. So the temple and the tabernacle were designed by God to help the people of Israel think about spiritual realities. So all the Old Testament stuff, tabernacle, sacrificial system, priesthood, These were all copies and shadows pointing to heavenly realities. And again, it was also pointing to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So back to verse 5. Again, this is talking about the Old Testament priests. It says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And he says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is a quote from Exodus 25:40, where it says that God not only gave Moses instructions about the tabernacle, but God even showed Moses apparently a replica of the tabernacle. That's what this is talking about. When it says, make everything according to the pattern, so the pattern that was shown you. 
So when Moses met with God on the mountain and God was explaining to Moses about the priesthood and the sacrificial temple, uh, sacrificial system and the tabernacle and everything else, God even showed Moses apparently a model or, or a replica of the tabernacle. So this is about Moses' ministry. And just as a reminder, Moses' ministry was good. Moses' ministry was good because he followed God's instruction. And, and the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system were good. They were in obedience to God, but they weren't complete. They were copies and shadows. That's what the writer's saying here. They were copies and shadows pointing to spiritual realities in heaven and pointing forward to their fulfillment in Christ, the true high priest. So again, the posture of Jesus is seated because he's done everything necessary for salvation. And the place where Jesus is seated is at the right hand of God in heaven in the actual throne room of God. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So every high priest, they have a job to do. And their job is to offer gifts and sacrifices. And it says that it was necessary for Jesus also to have something to offer. And what did Jesus offer? We've already seen this, and the writer will talk more about it later. But Jesus offered his own life. Because Jesus is not only the priest... He's the sacrifice. He's the true high priest and he's the true sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus offered up himself when he went to the cross. You look at verse 4, this is sort of a parenthetical statement. It says, Now if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. We've seen this earlier, but Jesus could not be a priest in the old covenant system because he was not from the priestly tribe of Levi. He was from the kingly tribe of Judah. Also, Jesus never went into the temple to offer gifts according to the Mosaic law, again, because he wasn't a Levitical priest. Instead, as the writer has been saying, Jesus' priesthood is superior. Because he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He fulfills the prophecy from Psalm 110. So Jesus' priesthood is better. All right, verse 6, and we're going to talk more about this later in a a later sermon. But this is verse 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So this is saying that Jesus has a better ministry than Moses, a more excellent ministry, and it's more excellent than the Old Testament ministry because it's based on a better covenant and it's based on better promises. So this is why Jesus' ministry is better. Better than the old covenant sacrificial system, right? Again, because Jesus fulfills all this. So he talks about a better covenant, a better promises, Uh, In the future, we're going to talk more about this because the writer is really going to start focusing on the new covenant in the next couple of chapters. In fact, it's something like, of all the New Testament usage of the word covenant, about a third of them, maybe even a half, are just in the next couple of chapters in Hebrews. So it's a big focus for the book of Hebrews, this thought about covenant. All right, so that's all we're going to look at today. But I want to close with this. I want to spend some time thinking about Jesus being our great high priest, our intercessor, and the fact that he's actually in the throne room of God right now. So I want to stress this. These are not just empty words. Jesus truly is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, his people, right now. He's praying for us 
He's praying for you. He hears your prayers. Every single one of your prayers, he hears them. And I really want us to take this week and the next week, I want to encourage us as a church to grow in our prayer lives. Greg mentioned that this is the season of Lent, and I will freely acknowledge that there is nothing in the Bible that requires us to do anything during the season of Lent, right? There's nothing in Scripture that tells us to do something. At the same time, you know what? It's not a bad thing for God's people to grow in our prayer lives, right? That's a good thing. And I doubt there is anyone in here who says, my prayer life is absolutely wonderful and perfect right now. I don't need anything. I hope you don't think that. So I want to encourage us in our prayer lives to be thinking about Jesus being our sympathetic and caring high priest who, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, always lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is God. He is the infinite God. He can hear every single one of our prayers at the same time because he's God. Also, I mentioned the last time I preached that part of Jesus being our intercessor, I want to stress this again, is that he purifies our prayers. The Puritan Thomas Watson used this illustration that I talked about. A young boy gathers up flowers and weeds and presents them. He wants to give a birthday gift to his dad. So he picks all these flowers, but he also gathers weeds. He hands them to his mother. Mother doesn't just take all the weeds and flowers and give them to the father. No, she picks out the weeds so that all that is left is a beautiful bouquet. Then she hands them to the father and says, this is a present from your son. That's what Jesus does for us as our intercessor when we pray. He purifies our prayers. He takes the sinful weeds of our prayers and presents our purified prayers to the father. And they're a sweet smelling aroma to our God. I'm almost done with the sermon, but I'm going to ask you to flip back to Hebrews 4. Look at Hebrews 4, 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14. The writer is encouraging us to come to the throne of God in our prayers. So Hebrews 4, 14. We'll look at 14 to 16. It says this. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is this encouragement to persevere. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is able to sympathize with us, what we're going through. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, think about what God is saying here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's throne is a throne of grace. It's a throne of tenderness and grace. And when we come to God's throne, we can receive mercy. We can find grace to help in our time of need. We have a father on the throne who loves his sons and daughters. Our dad is on the throne. And he loves us, his kids. It's a throne of grace, and it's a throne of compassion. And our dad invites us to come to him in prayer. Also at the right hand of the Father's throne, we have our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who's our great high priest. He loves us, and he intercedes for us, and he purifies our prayers, and he presents our prayers to the Father. He pulls out, as I said, all the weeds of our prayers so we can be bold when we pray. Now, here's the thing. God tells us all these things. Why does he tell us all these things? 
as an encouragement for us to actually pray, right? To encourage us to come to him in prayer constantly. He wants us to come to him. He invites his kids to come to the throne of grace in prayer. He invites us to come to him in our time of need. He tells us to draw near to the throne of grace continuously, over and over again. That's what he tells us to do. And he tells us to come with confidence, with boldness. So our father, our dad, wants us to come into his holy presence because he's a tender father. And he gives us help in our time of need. And our Savior is a great high priest who loves us and he invites us to come to him because he always lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us. And he wants us to talk to him. So I'm going to, think, I'm going to ask you to think about your own struggles in prayers. Many of us have different struggles in our prayer lives. There are just lots of different ways that we struggle. And so this week, as an assignment, I'm going to ask you to think about your own struggles and your own weaknesses when it comes to prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray and to ask the Lord to show you your own weaknesses. And then next week, we're going to talk more about prayer. And again, all of this goes along with Jesus being our high priest, the one who always lives to make intercession for us. So here, let me give you a few tendencies. Here's one tendency for Christians is to just not pray much at all, to be prayerless. One tendency is just to spend very little time praying to God. So I would ask, is that you? Ephesians 6.18, we're told this, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're told to pray without ceasing. But some Christians just have very little communication with the Lord. So I would ask, is that you? If you're honest, if you're honest, would you say, I just don't pray much? I don't talk to God much at all. Oftentimes, I'll tell somebody, I'll pray for you, but then I forget about it. I just don't pray much at all. So I'm asking, is that you? So that's one tendency, just to be prayerless. Here's another tendency, to be self-centered in our prayers. To just focus on myself, what I want. Or just focusing on my own family, what I want for them. Self-centeredness is super common for believers. James gives us this warning in James 4.3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So for some of us, our tendency is to ask wrongly, to ask with wrong motives, to be self-centered when we pray. So if you're honest, you think when I pray, honestly, when I pray, most of what I pray for is just to please myself or for my family. And something that goes along with being self-centered is just not being thankful, to be thankless. So we pray for something. Has this ever happened to anybody? You pray for something. God answers your prayers and he provides, but then we don't make the connection between our prayer and God answering it. We kind of think, wow, that was lucky. That turned out well. And we don't thank God for answering the prayer that we ask. And then we just move on to the next self-centered prayer. We don't spend much time thanking God. We don't spend much time adoring God and praising God. We don't spend a lot of time in just worshiping while we pray. Instead, most of our time is just a list, a laundry list of all the stuff we want, right? So that's one tendency in prayer, to be self-centered. You're always thinking about yourself. So do any of these describe you? Here's another one. This is the last one I'm going to talk about today. But there can be a reluctance to ask God directly for what you want. Here's what I mean. You love the Lord. Your prayer life is pretty strong, but you don't feel comfortable 
asking God directly for what you want. You're reluctant to make your request known to the Lord. Sometimes this happens, ironically, with very wise and mature Christians. They can have a tendency to do this. You know that, that prayer involves praising God and thanking him and confessing sins. You know, the Acts, ACT, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving. Also, you, these Christians can have a high view of the Lord and his sovereignty. And we realize that oftentimes our motives are sinful. So we may think, God, and also, God already knows the desires of my heart, so why ask him? He already knows, right? And he's sovereign, and we want his will to be done. Wasn't his will going to be done anyway? So we just kind of sort of reason these things out without actually praying. And, and so we, we end up praying, thy will be done. And we often just, that can be our prayer. Well, God, thy will be done. And we can be hesitant to ask God what we want because we think it sounds selfish. I'm just asking, does anybody feel that way here's my encouragement to you and we'll talk more about it next week don't get to thy will be done too quickly there can be a, a, a tendency for as i said for godly mature christians who are rightly skeptical of their own motives but there can be a tendency just to get to thy will be done too quickly and what happens is you rarely ask god for what you want and here's here's the thing james says in james 4 2 you do not have because you do not ask you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus tells us repeatedly that our Father in heaven loves giving his children good gifts and that if we ask, we will receive. So maybe we think we're being really pious by not asking God for what we want. But what if God is saying, yes, I know the desires of your heart, but I'm not going to give you the desires of your heart until you ask me. I'm not even going to give you these things until you ask me repeatedly, like the persistent widow. What if God is saying that? What if Jesus, our great high priest, is saying, you do not have because you do not ask, and I'm not going to give you what you want until you ask? What if he's saying that? So I would just ask you, when it comes to prayer, what's your tendency in this? Is it prayerlessness or self-centeredness, lack of thankfulness, or are you reluctant to ask God directly for what you want? Okay. So during this week, that's the assignment, is be thinking about that challenge, about, about where you fall on that. So bottom line is this. Ask the Lord to show you how you can grow in your communication with him. Ask the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who always lives to make intercession for him. Ask him how you can grow in your prayer life. And the next week we'll continue thinking about prayer. And let me close with this. To my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to me. Again, your father wants to hear from you because you're his beloved child. Your God wants to be, be in communication with your great high priest, Jesus, who intercedes for you. Jesus is praying for you now. He wants you to be in frequent prayer. He wants you to be bold and free when you come to him in your prayers because he purifies our prayers. So this coming week, talk to your great high priest, Jesus. Talk to your father, your dad who loves you, and ask our great God to help you grow in your prayer life. And that's my prayer for all of us, that during this season of Lent, we would grow in our prayer lives. And I tell you what, even if just one person grows even a little in their prayer lives, then my prayer will be answered, okay? So let's pray to that end right now. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord God, please help me. Please help me grow in my love for you, Lord, because I really do want to communicate with you more. I don't want to be selfish in my prayers. I do. I do want your will to be done, but I also want the freedom and joy to be honest with you to make my requests known to you father you're my dad 
and I know you love me, and I know you want me to communicate with you more, and I want to communicate with you more because I love you. So Lord, in the coming weeks, please help me, help my church grow in our desire to pray and in our ability to just talk with you in prayer. So I come to you, Father, in the name of my great high priest, seated at your right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.